Chapter One of Hope Farm Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hope Farm Notes by Herbert W. Collingwood. Chapter One The Sunny Side of the Barn. Part One. As a boy on a little Yankee farm, I had a stent set for me every day. During the winter, it was sawing and splitting wood. Our barn stood so that somehow on a winter's day, one side of it faced the road, and it always seemed to be warm and sunny. The other was turned so that it was always cold and frosty, with little, if any, sun. The hens, the cow, and the sheep always made for the sunny side of the barn, which represented the comfortable and the bright side of life. The old gentleman who brought me up always put the woodpile on the frosty side of the barn. He argued that if the boy worked too much on the sunny side, he would stop to look at the passers-by, feel something of the joy of living, and stop his work to absorb a little bit of it. We were brought up to believe that labor was a curse, put upon us for our sins, a serious matter, a discipline, and never a joy. When the boy worked on the frosty side, he must move fast in order to keep warm. He would not stop to loaf in the sun. He would not throw stones or practice baseball so long as he had to keep his mittens on to keep his fingers warm. Thus the argument was that the boy would accomplish more on the frosty side, and realized that labor represented the primal curse which somehow seemed to rest particularly hard upon the farmer. And so, as a child, I did my work, and passed much of my life on the frosty side of the barn, silent and thoughtful, while the hens cackled and sang on the sunny side. It seemed strange to me that people could not see that the thing which made the hens lay would surely make the boy work. There will always be a dispute as to whether a boy or a man does his best work under the spur of necessity, or out of a full bag of the oats of life, and they do it with greater or less cruelty, as more or less of their life has been spent on the frosty side. I never yet saw a self-made man who did anything like a perfect job on himself. They usually spoil their own sons by giving them too easy a time, while work is a necessity in building character. Work without play of some sort is labor without soul, and that is one of the most cruel and dangerous things in the world. I have noticed that most men who pass their childhood on the frosty side of the barn have what I call a squinty-eyed view of youth. They spend a large part of their time telling how they had to work as a boy, and how much inferior their own sons are since they do not have chores to do. That man's boys will pay no attention except when his eye is upon them, and rightly so, I think. The man looks across the table at mother, with a shake of his head, for is not the Smith family responsible for the fact that these boys do not equal their wonderful sire? I have learned better than to expect much sympathy from my boys for what happened fifty years ago. The old gentleman would come now and then and look around the corner of the barn to see if I was at work. The frosty side of the barn in youth has one advantage— it forces the boy to think and reason out the justice of life. Uncle Daniel had not read enough of history to know that Guizot, the great French historian, says that the only thing which those who represent tyranny, injustice, or evil are afraid of is the human mind. What he means is that whenever you can get the plain, common people to think clearly and with their own brains, they will sooner or later wipe off the slate of history and write freedom in big letters. On the sunny side... I think I should have talked, and so rid myself of my thought before it could print itself upon my little brain. 
but there on the frosty side of the barn I know that I said little, but reasoned it out with the clear wisdom of childhood. If Uncle Daniel had been a student of Shakespeare, he would have gone straight to that famous passage in Julius Caesar which probably expresses the thought of ninety percent of the humans capable of thinking, who have ever lived to maturity. Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep o' nights. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. I was thinking out my problem, and I want to tell you younger men that the questions which started at the teeth of my saw on the frosty side of that old barn have cut their way through the years, and chased and haunted me all through life. The injustice of labor and social conditions. That is the foundation of the trouble in the world. Upon it all, helpful education should be based. Youth's ideals will always chase you like that, if you give them half a chance, and you never can have better mental companions. I was trying to reason out one of two resolutions. Often that dim future of manhood, when I should grow up, my time would come, and I might have power over some other boy, or maybe a man. I could put him on the frosty or on the sunny side of the barn as I saw fit. What would I do to him to pay for my session on the frosty side? Somehow I think it is natural for human beings to seek reparation and promise themselves to take their misfortunes out of somebody else when their power comes. I think I should have grown up with something of that determination in mind had it not been for the poet Longfellow. Now you will smile, you successful farmers, you dry old analyzers and solemn teachers and you budding young hopes. What has poetry to do with farming or agricultural education? What did the poet Longfellow ever do for farming? Did he ever have a hen in an egg-laying contest that laid 300 eggs in a year? Did he ever raise a prize pumpkin or a prize crop of potatoes? Did he even originate the Longfellow variety of flint corn? Do not men need solid pith rather than flabby poetry in their thought? It is true that Longfellow could have starved to death on a good farm. Yet his poetry, and the thought that went with it, were one of the things that made New England dominate this country in thought. My childhood was passed at a time when we had no science to study. Bacteria were swimming all about us in the air, the food, and the water. I had, no doubt, swallowed millions of them in every mouthful, and we grew fat on them. We had no books on science or bulletins, but every farmhouse had its copy of Bryant, Whittier, Longfellow, Emerson, and Holmes. The best duck raiser in our town was a man who could recite Bryant's poem to a waterfowl with his eyes shut. I think I could safely challenge many famous poultrymen to recite even one verse of that poem. Yet who would say that he would not be a better poultryman and a better man if he could carry in his heart a few verses of that poem? There is a power whose care teaches thy way along that pathless coast. He who from zone to zone Guides through the boundless sky thy certain flight, in the long way which I must tread alone, will lead my steps aright. I had recited Longfellow's resignation in school. I gave it about as a parrot would, but on the frosty side of the old barn one verse shoved itself into my little brain. Let us be patient. These severe afflictions not from the ground arise, but oft time celestial benedictions Assume this dark disguise. Just think of that. A celestial benediction. It was a great thing for a boy to think about. I looked both words up in the dictionary and got, perhaps, half of their meaning. 
In all our town there seemed to be no one except our old minister to come around on the frosty side of the barn with comfort or promise. But this celestial benediction, which the poet told about, got right to you. It might even live under that awful pile of wood which I was to saw, and it would be worth the job of sawing it if I could find such a thing under the pile. I heard people speak of a nigger in the woodpile in terms of reproach, but a celestial benediction down under the wood was certainly entitled to all respect. I did not fully understand it, or what it meant, but it got into me and stayed there, or the multiplication table or the rule of square root would never remain. My belief is that if I had committed to memory in place of that poem some excellent classroom lecture at college, I should have become a little anarchist, and gone through life pushing such people as I could reach toward the frosty side of the barn. As it was, that poem, repeated over and over, made me vow as a child that if I ever could influence or direct the lives of farmers, I would do my best to see that they lived and did their work on the sunny side of the barn. In my day, children were brought up on the scriptures and a stick, both well applied, and yet all these lectures and lickings never stuck in my life as did the noble poetry we read in school, and the few pictures which hung on the walls of the home. There is a curious thing about some of these pictures. I am told of a case where two boys in the Tennessee mountains volunteered for the Navy. Their mountain home was as far removed from the ocean as it well could be. They had never even seen a large pond. For three generations, not one of their ancestors had ever seen the salt water. Yet these boys would not listen to any call for the army, but they demanded a place in the Navy. The story came to an officer in a nearby camp, and he became interested and visited that home. Both father and mother were puzzled over the action of the boys, and they could not understand why Henry and William had demanded the ocean. As the officer turned away, he noticed, hanging on the wall of the living room of that house, the crude picture of a ship under full sail and on an impossible blue sea. It had come into the family years before, wrapped around a package of goods, and mother had hung it on the wall. From their youth, those boys had grown up with that picture before them, and it had decided their lives. It was stronger than the influence of father and mother. They could not overcome it. I speak of that in order that you men and women, with children of your own, may understand how the dreams, the poetry, the visions of youth may prove stronger influences than any of the science, the wisdom, or the fine examples you may put before your little ones. On the wall of our old living room at home was a chromo entitled Joseph and His Brethren. It was an awful work of art. It showed a group of men putting a boy down into a hole in the ground. It would have made the head of an art department weep in misery, and yet it affected me deeply. I used to stand and study it, with the result that at least one chapter of the Bible gave me great joy, and that was the story of Joseph and his brothers. That story helped to keep me sweet and hopeful on the frosty side of the barn, for I reasoned it all out as I worked. Here, I thought, was a farm boy. He did rather more than his share of living on the frosty side, and see what he came to. I used to picture Joseph in mind as he came walking over the desert carrying his father's instructions about the sheep and the management of the farm. His brothers saw him coming, and they said among themselves, Behold, this dreamer cometh. You see, even in those days, practical men could not understand the value of a dreamer, a poet, or a thinker, as the first aid to practical agriculture. I have no doubt that Joseph the dreamer often forgot to water the sheep. I have no doubt but that they got away from him when he was hurting them, and so his brothers quickly got rid of him, and they sent him off to the place where they thought dreams never came true. 
and that is where they made their mistake. And the same mistake is often made in these days by other practical farmers, for dreams that are based on faith and pure ambition always come true. If Joseph had not been a dreamer, carrying the ideals of his childhood into Egypt, we can readily understand which side of the barn his brothers would have gone to when they appeared before him later. But Joseph was a man who remembered the dreams and the hopes of his childhood kindly. He gave those brothers the sunniest side of the barn, and by doing so he made himself one of the great men in history. You may surely take it from me that at some time in your life, if you prove worth the salt you have eaten, your state or your country will call you up before the judgment seat and will say to you, I demand your life. In your youth you had ideals of manhood and of service. I have trained you and given you knowledge. I now demand your life as proof that your old ideals were true. That comes to all men, not only on the battlefield, but in all the humble walks of life, the farm, the factory, the shop, wherever men are put at labor, and it means a life given to service, the use of power and knowledge, in order that men less fortunate may live on the sunny side of the barn. We had something of an illustration of this when America entered the Great War. Many of us felt honestly that our boys were not quite up to the standard. We thought they were a little lazy, inefficient or spoiled, because they did not think as we did about labor and the necessity for work. We did not realize what the trouble was, and so we generally charged it to the influence of mother's side of the family. We could not understand that by education, training, and example, we had simply taught those boys only the material and selfish side of life. They demanded unconsciously more of its poetry and romance, and thus the war swept them away in a blaze of glory. We suddenly woke up to find that under the inspiration of an unselfish desire, our lazy and careless boys had become the finest soldiers this world had ever seen. They were made so through the power of poetry and imagination, for making the world safer democracy is only another name for making the great life offering in order that helpless men and women may know the comfort and glory of living on the sunny side of the barn. I think I have lived long enough and under conditions which fit me to know human nature better than most men know books. Our present improved man came from a savage. Originally man was a confirmed dweller on the frosty side of the barn. As human life has developed, the tendency has been for this man to run for a warmer place on the sunny side. In order to get there, his natural tendency has been to crowd some weaker brother back into the frost. We may not like to admit it, but as we have crowded poetry and imagination and love out of agricultural education, we have lost track of the thought that there is one great duty we owe to society for the great educational machine she has given us. That one great life duty is to try to carry some more unfortunate brother out of the frost into the comfort of the sunny side of the barn. We are too much in the habit of trying to leave this practical betterment to the legislature or to the federal government, when it never can be done unless we do it ourselves, as a part of human sacrifice. You must remember that in spite of all our scientific work, the world is still largely fed and clothed by the plain farmers, whose stock and trade is largely human nature and instinct. The shadow which undoubtedly lies over farming today is due to the fact that too many of these men and women feel that they are booked hopelessly to spend their lives on the frosty side of the barn. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by Todd